Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. This is the final episode in my Norse Mythology mini-series. We've talked about most of the Norse pantheon as defined by the D&D 5th edition Player's Handbook in Appendix B, specifically on page 299, since Appendix B has quite a few different pantheons. And we're going to start out on this episode with, a, I guess, a great example of, of why I keep saying this is Norse mythology as defined by the Player's Handbook, because the, the first one on our list today is a god called Surtur, S-U-R-T-U-R, listed as the god of fire giants and war. He's lawful evil. His domain is war, and his symbol is a flaming sword. Now, if you remember the first episode of this miniseries, I was talking about the cosmology of the, the, the world of the Norse myths, and one of the characters in this was Surt, S-U-R-T, a fire giant dwelling in the uh, Muspel realm, I guess, for lack of a better term. I'm not really 100% sure still what Muspel is, if it's a world or a, a plane of existence or something outside of both. And Surt is um, the, the, specifically the fire giant who, who has a flaming sword who is going to uh, burn Yggdrasil, the, the world tree, at the end of time, at, during Ragnarok. Is Surtur Surt? Well, yes, most definitely. So Surt is his, I guess, English ver- the English version of his name. In Old Norse, it's Surtur, S-U-R-T-R. And so we add a U at the end for for clarity for us, for our, our pronunciation. It translates approximately, apparently, to black, kind of like soot, maybe. And he's a fire giant. He guards and, and or lives in Muspelheim. And he is going to be the god who destroys everything at the end of time. I feel like that's a pretty good analogy for sort of that Mana Yud Sushai figure or the Nyarlathotep figure, the, 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 the devourer, right? The thing that is going to devour everything. I, it, it's difficult really to, to classify on a high level things as good and evil at a certain point, right? If everything is fated to be a certain way and their function is to bring an end to everything, is it really evil? I can see that it is very lawful. Because there's ab- it's very absolute. It is going to end. It is going to end now because it is appointed. This is the time that it is said it is going to end. There's no recourse. There's no question about that. So that's lawful. Is it evil? It's hard to say because on, on one hand, I kind of feel like it's actually quite neutral. Whether you are good or whether you are evil, you are going to be devoured. And that's it. And there's no, there's nothing that the god is getting out of this for for the destruction of everything. Yeah, that's that to me is actually neutral. So I, I feel I feel evil is it, it sort of defines itself as as taking advantage of others, of of harming others for their own good or for their own benefit. And I don't feel like 
being a great big god at the end of time, whose one job is to end everything, I don't think you could really ascribe that as evil. That said, from a from a life point of view, I, I could see that that is that that could be construed as evil. And certainly, if Surtur is uh, is is the figure that we needed to use for lawful evil, in in a cosmology that otherwise maybe didn't have anyone who's really truly lawful evil, I think that's a great fit. I really do. I think that's a that's a good one. So that's Surt. That's what we know about him. He, he, I don't know that there are any stories necessarily with him uh, figuring into it. It's just he is, he, he's the thing at the end of time. And there's going to be certain consequences of him, of, of him making, his, of making his big move. We also know, of course, that Freyr is going to kill him, and he is going to kill Freyr. So they're going to destroy each other at the, at the very end. Next up is Thor. Now, isn't that exciting? Probably fill a whole episode with this, technically, if I knew a whole lot about Thor. I really don't. So, Thor is the god of storms and thunder. He is chaotic good. Domains are tempest and war. And his symbol is a hammer. Of course it is. You know, it was his hammer, actually, that made me sort of realize that in Norse mythology, Everything has a name. It's not just Thor's hammer, it's Mjolnir. Or Mjolnir. It's not just uh, Odin's throne. It is the, His throne has a famous name. It's not just a, a, a castle, it is this specific castle. Everything has a name. If you, if you look... You don't even have to look that hard. If you look at, at the Norse mythology, just everything of importance has a name. And I think there's a, I think there's a great lesson there for Dungeon Masters... If you want to, and and just to some degree, this is baked into D and D already, because the the rule book itself, or the rules rather themselves, are often written such that in order to be affected by something, you have to have a name. Now, there's the mystical side of that, where if a wizard knows your name, they may have more power over you because their spells might require that or whatever. But I mean, just functionally and mechanically, sometimes. A, a fumble or 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 a, a crit doesn't actually have an effect on something you know if it's dealt by something who has not been named a named if it's not a named character or if it's not an, a named item if it's not a specific if the name of the item doesn't have the specific word in it you know there are all these like little caveats about what counts as something of significance so as a dungeon master, if you want to give something added significance, give it a name. And don't just make it the short sword of ruin. Make it Stormblood or Vedgam. Something something with a, with character. Like, it is a thing because, because it was born. It was manufactured so specifically that they, they give it a name like a child. So anyway, Thor. Thor has a hammer. Mjolnir, apparently, actually means lightning. Which I didn't know. Thor is the thunder god. He is the archetype of loyalty and an honorable warrior. He is hugely popular, obviously, in modern day, as well as in his own time. He was regarded as kind of the ideal, right? I mean, in terms of, of honor 
and duty. He was it. He was the the the, the model everyman. Thor's a a god, but he's also actually part giant. Uh, Odin is half giant, so so he's 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 got a little bit of giant blood in him from from his father, and then his mother is either Jord or Hlúðin or Fjordjan. Not really sure which of those is the correct name because apparently it differs. But she is, I think, half giant by by all reports, and so I think he's. So, so, so Thor has some some amount of giant blood in his, in his running through his veins, and maybe that that explains his strength. I, I don't know. I don't know the actual canon on that. But he was he was very very significant religiously. Uh, people would pray to him for protection, for comfort, and just for the blessing and hallowing of places, whether it's um, at a wedding or or before they built a building or planted crops, Thor was often uh, the subject of their prayers. So he wasn't just a big dumb god with a big hammer who went around banging things. He was he was a he was a, a caring and giving god, which is interesting because especially I think because of modern Thor portrayals, you you kind of don't think of that side of of Thor as a god. And to think of him as kind of a fatherly, godlike figure is, in a weird way, uh, I don't know, sobering almost. It's it's kind of touching to think that people would would have prayed to that figure for 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 protection and for comfort and for for blessings upon things that they had great 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 hope for. It's really quite beautiful. That said, in D and D. He's the god of war, or a god of war, anyway. He's he's assigned the chaotic good alignment, which I think is is essential and very fitting. I don't know that I don't know that it's historically accurate. I don't know if he would have been seen as a chaotic god, but nevertheless, I think it, it definitely works with our modern interpretation of what he is. He was definitely he 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 gained sort of new new influence during the viking uh raids when when the vikings became a thing thor was often something that they invoked apparently so he did sort of shift a little bit uh, along with odin and and others the the uh, the the alignment i guess maybe shifted but primarily from from the point of view of, of this pantheon in the player's handbook, and I think in the real world, he, he was always good aligned. And so the idea that he might be chaotic good is interesting because that is how we see him. He's got that hammer. He, can, he has power over things. And I think when you're good, it does sometimes take something a little bit extra to be good no matter what. You know, if you're lawful good, then there's only... there's there's good only as assigned by the law. And anything outside of the purview of that rule, um, good doesn't apply to. Mercy might not even apply to it, because it's not within the law. Whereas chaotic good, you just, um, you're good no matter what. You're, you're good against all odds. 
And seeing Thor as that power is, is quite inspiring. In terms of the stories around Thor, at least from what I've read, and as I've said, most of that is in the Neil Gaiman interpretation of what I assume to be the uh, 13th century poems of, um, of Snorri Sturluson. Most of the stories that I've read have been stories about Thor being hungry, being impatient, um, being cold. He's, he's, he seems to not be... He, does, he doesn't seem to be a Robin Hood figure, even in the myths. He just kind of wanders around, and, and he'll fight evil when he sees it. But a lot of times he's just being challenged. He is very much a Hercules uh, figure, I would say, if, if I had to equate him to anything that I knew from, from other stories. Uh, he's just kind of a, a wanderer who, who finds... who might find a cause that happens to benefit the good people of the land. But he doesn't go around looking for good people to defend, at least in the myths. Again, I don't know how that translates to people, you know, to, to the people of the time and how they saw him and how they looked at him and what his nature was. But in these, in these epic poems, he is very much a um, sort of a surprised hero. Didn't necessarily mean to be a hero that day, but he ended up being a hero. His arch-nemesis, that's the word I was looking for an episode ago, his arch-nemesis is the world serpent, Jormungandr. He fights Jormungandr a couple of times in stories, but does not defeat the, the serpent. He, he, he lifts the serpent at one point, or at least a section of the serpent's body, but... Yeah, cannot defeat the serpent. And, of course, during Ragnarok, he will be killed by the serpent. Now, I think there's a... There, there, it's worth mentioning that maybe there's a little bit of a contrast between Odin and Thor. Much like, you might argue, there's the Christian contrast between God, the, the God-God, and then Jesus Christ, the, the human... Uh, avatar of God, I guess you could say. And the idea there is, certainly in Christianity, that the Old Testament God is, well, very much a lawful good God, I guess questionably good. Anyway, lawful God of, of some sort. And, and Jesus being a very uh, forgiving, merciful God, who, who maybe you could even call chaotic good, or so. I feel like Odin and Thor have a similar relationship, and it's, it's worth thinking about, because Odin would have been appealed to by rulers and kings and leaders, people of, of who, who need to think and be pensive and really weigh consequences and so on, whereas Thor would have been more of a god of the people, of action, someone who acts first and thinks about it maybe later, and maybe if it didn't work out, then maybe tries to make amends after the fact. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a bit of a, it, there's a spectrum there. And, and I think that's, that's worth considering. Um, especially if you do think of Odin at all as a god of war, which I think I said that in the first episode he is listed as a god of war. Yes, he is. Uh, in the in the D&D &D player's handbook. And, I mean, as he did become later in time anyway. 
Um, but there's a difference there in, in, in the way that they carry that out. One being much more thoughtful and, and more pensive and maybe a little bit more wise, and one being a little bit more brash, younger in feeling, and um, m- more prone to action first. Which I, I think some people would appreciate, depending on the circumstance. Let's talk about Thrym, the god of frost giants and cold. He's listed as a chaotic evil god of war, and his symbol is the white double-bladed axe. Thrym, again, wasn't actually a god uh, in, in mythology. He was a giant who famously stole Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer, stole it from Thor, and uh, took it back, and as ransom, uh, demanded the hand of goddess of the goddess Freya as his as his wife. Well, Freya refused to go to Thrym, so Thor masqueraded as Freya, dressed up in drag, and went to Thrym, claiming to be Freya. Totally tricked him, totally fooled him, and uh, as part of the ceremony, they brought the the hammer out to consecrate Thor, or, or Freya, uh, Thor as Freya, as Thrym's bride. When the, the minute they brought the hammer out, of course, Thor grabbed it, slaughtered Thrym and all the other giants in attendance, and left with his hammer. How does that correspond to D&D's interpretation of him as, first of all, a god? Well, it doesn't. He's a giant and as a god of war. Possibly. I can see that. So, um, I think, once again, they needed a name for a chaotic evil god of war, and Thrym, uh, performing an affront to a chaotic good god, such as stealing his infamous hammer, is, is pretty grave, and so I think it all fits. And again, we're just elevating Thrym to godhood, because we needed somebody. I love that we have a god of fire giants and of frost giants. I think that's really, really great. And uh, it's perfect, obviously, that one is a lawful evil god and one's a chaotic evil god. Um, I, I really like what they've done here. That's very cool. Next up is Tyr, the god of courage and strategy. He's lawful neutral. He's the god of knowledge and war, which, of course, are the same, or the domains of knowledge and war, which are the same domains as Odin. And his symbol is a sword. This one's pretty spot-on, actually. Tyr, possibly the most spot-on, Tyr was a god of knowledge and war. He, um, he was often associated sort of along with Odin and Thor for one reason or another, and he was invoked in several poems for, for, for victory in an oncoming battle. I will say that he's in no way really portrayed as as an evil god. He, he's actually an upholder of law and justice. So, um... Oh, they're, they're not calling him an evil god. I, I was still on chaotic evil, I guess, in my head. He's being portrayed here as lawful neutral, so that actually works quite well. Being, being in the domain of knowledge and war, it makes sense, because he also... He is a god of, of law and justice, so he must be pensive to some degree. He must be able to think about problems. And... And he's even sometimes uh, invoked along with Mars from the Roman pantheon. So he's kind of, he's right in that, in that area of, of power and absolute 
might and absolute justice. And then, last but not least, the last one on the table, we have Ullr, the god of hunting and winter. Chaotic neutral, domain is nature, and his symbol is the longbow. Again, this is kind of spot on, to be honest. He's, um, he's, Ullr is pronounced, or, or rather spelt, U-L-L-R. We add a U or an E at the end to make it clearer on how to pronounce it. And again, the caveat is that I actually still have no idea how to pronounce it. But, uh, he's the son of the grain goddess Sif, who, if you'll recall, is Thor's wife. He is apparently the stepson of the thunder god of Thor. I don't know who his father is. Yeah, I couldn't find that information. But he is well established in the myths as an excellent uh, archer, hunter, skater, skier. He's handsome, he's warlike, he's, he, he would be someone you would invoke if you were getting into a duel. You know, he's, he's kind of a, a, the man's man. He's, he's, a, he's an all-rounder. I can see from all of this that he, he, he fits in to that sort of ranger archetype. He could be he could be a god of a ranger easily with I mean with archery with skiing you know he's very outdoorsy it sounds like and and that's kind of how he's portrayed and of course being the son of a goddess of earth at least traditionally I mean in in the D and D player's handbook she's actually more of a goddess of war but then again in the player's handbook it's also not explicitly stated that he's the son of Sif so you wouldn't have to even keep that. But you certainly could, just because his mom's the goddess of war does not mean that he has to be a god of war. It, he could go outside sometimes, although there are there are instances in poems and such where he is uh, sworn oaths to by leaders of tribes or or or, or communities. So there is a, a a vague idea of him being kind of almost a chieftain figure as well, if you prefer a ranger chieftain, which 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 fits nicely, I think, for for a god. Authority tends to work pretty well for god figures, and that's kind of the, the sense that I get for him. And it is also proposed in some places that he was a Vanir, not an Asir. That doesn't 100% make, make sense if, if indeed he is the, the, the son of Sif, because I, unless I'm mistaken, Sif is an Asir. But uh, we don't know who the father is, so he could be part Vanir. I don't really know. I, I couldn't find a definitive answer on that. Therefore, I'm going to call him a Vanir Ranger God. Now, that's a little bit of my interpretation, a little bit of color there, but whether whether we, we assign him to the Asir or Vanir, we could certainly safely say that he is is the archetypical Ranger God. And that wraps up the entirety of the Norse pantheon according to the D&D player's handbook. Some of them, as you can tell, I heartily agree with. Others, I was confused by. All in all, I think it's it's a huge job to interpret these ancient, truly ancient myths and, and fit them, sort of count, uh, you know, retrofit them into into the the D&D alignment system and the domain system and so on. So I think I think it's a great little resource in the back of the book there. I think it's a lot of fun to look at these old stories and try to fit them into D&D campaigns and and incorporate that into the setting. I think that's it's a it's a great great thing. And if 
taking a table out of the appendix and researching your northern barbarian pantheon by reading through old Norse myths, if, if that happens, then I think that's going to inspire ideas and backstories, and it's just going to give you material to work with when someone asks you an unexpected question about why are you doing that? And suddenly you say, oh, well, well because the goddess Skadi would, would want me to. You know, and people are, what? Well, let me tell you about this story about Scotty. I, I happen to have, like, an, a parable about her. Or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's it's perfect. That's exactly, that's the kind of stuff that brings, that brings life into a world. That makes it just endlessly seeded with, with stories and backstories and stories for the backstories. And reasons why those stories evolved and reasons why they couldn't possibly be true and so on. The more I researched the the Norse mythological world, the more fascinated I became with it. I, I've never known a whole lot about that region and about that mythology, and I, I really had a blast reading the Neil Gaiman book, Norse Mythology, and reading the couple of different websites that I found on the subject, and even playing a couple of games. There have been a couple of games in the past um, couple of years where there were just heavy Norse themes. And they've been quite a lot of fun. There's there's one called Jotun uh, for uh, for Steam. You can get it for Linux and everything else. And it's it's just... You, you, it's a beautiful game. It's, and it's kind of unique in a weird way. I mean, the gameplay isn't super unique. It's not something that you'd look at and not know how to play it. It's It's pretty typical, I guess. But I guess just the world that it is set in is necessarily unique because there's not that much out there for based on Norse mythology and runes and things like that. So the the chance to to get in there and, and play in that world is it's just a blast. And of course I've done an episode on runic magic already. I think that's a, a great way to to bring a whole new dimension of magic into your D&D world, and here's your pantheon for, for the backstory of all of those runes. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as NotClatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.